Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Only two points separate the top three in the Premier League title race with just 12 games to go. Are we about to see the most exciting climax to a season ever? And could it be that Arsenal in third are in a better position to hunt down Liverpool and City than this time last season when they were top of the league? I'm Ayoakim Walere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, let's get into the title race. We have the Athletics Arsenal writer James McNicholas, Merseyside football writer Simon Hughes, and a man who splits his time between writing on both Manchester City and United. We've got Mark Critchley as well. Gents, it has to be something to be celebrated that, you know, we do genuinely have a a three-horse race at this stage of the season. Jacob Whitehead just dropped a piece on The Athletic today detailing how the last time three sides finished within five points of each other was, what, 10 years ago, 2013-14 season. A certain Jose Mourinho was still at Chelsea. A certain Steven Gerrard managed to slip um, at a vital moment in, in, in a match for Liverpool. Let's start with you on this one, Critch. Manchester City, are they looking like all guns blazing to win the Premier League or does it generally feel like there's some serious jeopardy right now? Um, well, I think I've been on enough podcasts on, on this podcast at enough times as well over the past year where we've talked about how can anyone compete with City? Has the Premier League become the Bundesliga? Is the future a sky blue boot stamping on the face of English football forever, etc., etc.? And I know a lot of City fans don't like those arguments, but honestly, I kind of subscribe to them. I think when you pull the camera back and you look at like five titles out of six uh, out of six in the last few years, three 90-point finishes, they've been the dominant team over this period, even though Liverpool have run them close. And Liverpool, look, they've had one of the greatest managers in their history. Behind the scenes, they've run the club almost perfectly, and they've only walked away with one title. So I think that speaks to City's pedigree and and the fact that you can never discount them. We've had periods in each of those seasons, I think, where City haven't quite looked all guns blazing, as you say. But they're kind of like um, like some like in a horror film when somebody's buried underground and you think you think they're dead and buried, and then suddenly like a fist raises up out the out the ground and grabs you by the ankle and pulls you back in. That's that's what City do. So um, I think at the moment, perhaps they're not at the tip top form. Um, if you look at you know, I think they've only scored 11 in the last six, uh, only three in the last three. Perhaps not quite as impressive as we used to see in, but we know what they do. They go on these runs, they 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 win game after game after game and, and pull themselves back in front. And so I think while it perhaps doesn't look totally ominous for, for Liverpool and Arsenal at the minute, you, you absolutely can't discount City's pedigree in this. Simon, I'm just thinking about the storyline of the Premier League and, and what this means, really. You've got uh, Klopp leaving, you've got Guardiola trying to outdo everyone in terms of, you know, accolades and, you know, trying to break records. But does it feel like something is romantic happening at Liverpool this season um, in, in, in many respects? I think that the big thing at the moment Liverpool is the injury situation above everything else. I mean, the teams that, that win the titles tend to be the ones that, that remain injury-free. 
uh, for the longest and, and managed to have availability at the key times. Obviously, City had their their injury problems early on in the season. Liverpool, I mean, if Liverpool win the league from this position, they've got 12 players out at the moment. It's like a few years ago, you're saying, well, if Salah's out, you know, they're going to struggle. They've got 12 players out. So certainly it's already been confirmed that uh, I think Alison Becker, Curtis Jones, Trent Alexander-Arnold, they're not going to be playing in March. So that's three, you know, top class players who are going to be unavailable in a in a period where Liverpool are playing some of the, you know, the, the closest rivals. So for Liverpool, if Liverpool win the league from this position, I think it will be an astonishing achievement. I'm not saying that they can't because, as you said, there's, there's a certain level of uh, magic when you when you throw Klopp into the mix with this. I mean, I don't think any other team would have won the League Cup or the Carabao Cup from the position that Liverpool won a couple of days ago. And that gives people the belief that maybe something incredible could happen. You say incredible, Liverpool are top of the league, so, and they have been for some time. And it it sort of feels like, well, Liverpool have got everything to lose. But I actually think the pressure's right off Liverpool at the moment because of the injuries, because they won the League Cup. Anything else that happens from here is a bonus. You've got to be realistic. 12 injuries, it's very difficult to deal with that. Almost impossible, I would say. James, Mikel Arteta, um, I guess in terms of experience, the least experienced out of the two managers we've just spoken about. But defensively, Arsenal have been incredible this season. Top of the bill when it comes to defensive, being a defensive fortress, but also outscoring City this season as well, which is quite impressive. Yeah, they've been flying since they came back from Dubai uh, in January. They've been a good defensive team all season long, but obviously the goals just dried up for them uh, at the turn of the year. But yeah, they came out of the blocks really strong and they can't stop scoring right now. And it's interesting, you know, talking about them in the context of the title race, it's impossible not to talk about last season. I think all Arsenal fans bear the scars of last season to a certain extent. So I almost think there's a bit of a hesitance to really sort of jump on board the kind of title train too early. I think, you know, we've, we've been burned by that before. But I think in some ways it might suit Arsenal, maybe being kind of the outsiders at this point in time. A lot of the focus is inevitably on Liverpool because of Klopp and his departure, inevitably on City because, well, they are so inevitable. And Arsenal, maybe a little bit less talk around them right now. And I think that could be a good thing because, you know, going under the radar might suit this team, this young team, as they look to do this for the first time, which would be a a massive, massive achievement for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, Critch, we can't ignore Pep Guardiola. Um, I call him the Tharnas of managing. <laughs> if, if we're looking at we're using uh, uh, the Avengers analogy, but realistically, you know, he, he's a manager with an insane work ethic, but also a manager that seems to get the best out of his team just when it matters as well. Yeah, if we want to talk about the reason why that City have been so dominant over the past few years, look, I'm sure plenty of people have a lot of different opinions on that, right? And we, we could go into hour-long podcasts on FFP, state ownership, whatever, you can't really separate the fact that Guardiola is at the club from that debate either. But all that being said, are they as dominant as they have been if he's not there? I think fundamentally most people would agree no. And you're right. The one thing that I think separates Guardiola from just about every single one of his peers is problem solving. That's fundamentally what management is, right? But he will always come up with an idea or a tactical system or just something that people haven't really been thought of, uh, hadn't thought of before. And when he's the first to do it, others follow. So, you know, does another manager move John Stones into midfield last season and turn City's fortunes around and, and tilt them towards the title? Probably not. 
there's been countless other examples in the past of similar things that he's done. Just when it looks like, you know, they basically play without a left back for five years. I'm still waiting for him to sign one, the proper one. So when you have somebody who's capable of that, it almost immunizes you from, from all the different setbacks that can come along the way in a title race. And I think from that perspective, he's, he's always been their biggest strength in it. And look, like I say, I think what everybody can agree on really is that the day that he leaves, City will be much weaker for it. And that'll be the time when other clubs will look to take advantage of that. But until uh, for as long as he remains in the dugout, he's absolutely a huge reason of why they're always going to be favourites in a race like this. It's interesting what, what Critch says in the, I think Guardiola's strength is sort of the micromanagement of, of games and situations, whereas Klopp's sort of approach to the tactical elements of the game has evolved over the years, but it doesn't change very often over a short period of time. And I think, you know, people talk about identity in football all the time. I think what we're seeing now in Liverpool's first team with the young players coming from the academy, they know exactly what's expected of them because of the 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 imprint that Klopp has right across the club in terms of the expectations on the players. So Bobby Clark, for example, obviously very talented technical player. But I think what impressed me most in the uh, the Carabao Cup final was tactically he knew exactly what was expected of him because the certain expectations of playing in that role in midfield, whether you're playing for the first team or the, uh, the under-23s or lower. So it's allowing a lot of these players, it's making it more straightforward for some of these younger players to come in and have an impact. Going into a title race, I, I would think, you know, obviously they've had two amazing results. I, I would say last night, Southampton, is an incredible result. I know they're a championship team, but to feel a number of sort of largely untested players and win as convincingly as they did will will encourage a lot of a lot of Liverpool fans, I guess. But, you know, they're coming up against some really top quality opposition over the next few weeks, teams that are going to be confident as well. So that's going to be a real test. So I think, you know, Liverpool can afford maybe to have some of these players absent for it. A couple of games, but it can't really go on for much longer. I, I think the reality of the situation will hit Liverpool hard. That's not me being, you know, negative. It's just the reality of it. You know, if, if as I said earlier, if they were to win the title with this number of players out for over, you know, for out for out for over a period of more than a fortnight, it's going to be an enormous achievement. Arguably, one of the, the greatest achievements ever, I would say, because you, I think people now in football just think, well. He's injured. Somebody else can just come in. You know, it's like, it's not as straightforward as that, particularly when you're dealing with young players. You know, there, there is an argument as well that Liverpool, you know, could Liverpool have done more to ensure that these players aren't injured? You know, this is not me saying, oh, poor old Liverpool, you know, that they, they're they dealing with lots of injuries, not of their own making. You know, that there is an argument. There's a lot of, lot, of, lot of conversation at the moment about like sort of what the club is doing internally to ensure that players don't become injured. Uh you know, to, to have 12 injuries is, is a pretty spectacular number, I would say. Obviously, some of those have happened in games where you've been, you know, bad tackle or something. That, that can happen, can't it? But when it's repeated muscle injuries, you have to start sort of asking a few questions of, of what the club is doing as well. James, um, in terms of tactically and being fluid, Mikel Arteta has to be given some plaudits. No recognisable number nine, really. Jesus hasn't really been in the team that much this season. And when he has played, he's been effective, but he's been in and out. Um, yet they're still scoring, especially in the second half of this season. Yeah, and to be honest, it's been the way for Arsenal since the start of last season that they've really shared the goals around. It's interesting that the kind of the number nine conversation has become such a big theme when we're only 
you know, a few years removed from City winning the league without a recognised striker. I think it's eminently possible if you're getting those goals from elsewhere in the team, which Arsenal are doing right now, particularly Bukai Saka. He is just in absolutely sensational form. But, you know, injuries will be a factor for them too. They were a factor last season. You know, the loss of William Saliba and Takahiro Tomiyasu in the same game as Europa League game, which they went out against Sporting Lisbon. You know, I think that played a huge part in the title bid coming off the rails. And Arsenal have worked really hard to ensure that they've got not just more depth, but maybe more physically reliable players within the squad as well. You know, we've seen some issues still with Jesus struggling for fitness. Thomas Partey's been out, but they've managed to cope with that relatively well thus far. And I think what's going to be interesting is the next few weeks in particular, they have got a significantly lighter schedule than some of these other teams. I mean, I think I'm right in saying Liverpool play six games in March. For Arsenal, it's just three Premier League games and uh, and their Champions League tie. That could make quite a big difference in terms of getting into those final couple of months, April and May, in decent shape. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. And it's Haaland. Oh, he is making himself at home. And so are Manchester City. Critch, yesterday we were talking about uh, Haaland and De Bruyne. How just, I don't know, it feels like deja vu, but they're back at the right time. Um, We can't ignore uh, the telepathy of that partnership, can we? And, and, And just how well that suits City at this moment in time, especially at a time where they're needing to show their superiority in the league. Yeah, I mean, the performance at Luton the other night was just extraordinary, really. Like you say, that that connection, that telepathy, and it's something that City have been missing for most of the season. Obviously, De Bruyne getting injured in the in the opening game against Burnley, and Haaland's had his period, his spells out too. He's still got 17 goals in the league. He was still the top scorer for all that period, which, you know, in a down year, you have to say, is still, still pretty remarkable. What City have done since Haaland's come in, yeah, they won the league a few years ago without a recognised number nine. Just adding Erling Haaland into this team was never a given that it was going to work, really. I know it sounds ridiculous when he scores the number of goals and performs at the level that he did, but it still required a recalibration. It's still 
been quite, um, you know, a bit, a bit of a sea change really in just how City play. Um, you've got this guy who's got 17 goals this season. The next highest in the squad is Foden with nine. You know, so really they're now operating with a with a focal point, with a talisman, if you like. So that has been difficult. And, you know, having him out the side again this season and having to readapt and then go back to the plan A and plan B and whatever, that's perhaps been more of a challenge and perhaps is why you haven't actually seen City yet absolutely the fluid best but when all those players come back together I mean got De Bruyne back now Haaland back I think the return of John Stones as well if he can stay fit that is huge as well he started three games in a row now and just what he does and how he's even taken up even more advanced positions than we saw last season now those three and and others Rodri of course they're all just absolutely essential players but City have got them all back at the at the right time and that that can only be worrying for the for the other two teams in the race James Let's talk about Arsenal's recruitment because recently we've seen them recruit to challenge the likes of Manchester City, Trossard, Jorginho, Havertz, Declan Rice. Some of those recruitments are starting to pay off. Yeah, it was a big factor actually when they were looking at Trossard. Obviously, it was last January, Mikhail Mudrik was the number one target. Uh, and when they lost out on him to Chelsea, they pivoted to Trossard. And one of the most attractive things about him was that he played in a similar game model at Brighton. Um, one of the coaching staff as well had worked with him in Belgium and he felt that he'd be able to adapt very quickly to Mikel Arteta's demands. And it proved to be the case. I mean, he had a really strong finish to the season. He's continued that form into this. Declan Rice, I think it took him a little bit more time to acclimatise. I think the level of detail and instruction that he was getting from Arteta was new to him. He was having to learn to play kind of a multifunctional role. You know, at times he's almost playing an auxiliary centre-half. At other times he's in the opponent's half leading the press. Uh, there's a lot to take in, but it's a credit to him how swiftly he's adapted and he's been incredibly important for Arsenal this season. And you have to think, you know, if they are to go on and win something in what remains of the campaign, he's going to be absolutely at the heart of it. Yeah, Simon, talk about injuries, but... You also have to give credit to the rebuilding of Liverpool's midfield, right? Well, it was a departure from what had served them well in the past, really. I think that's important to remember that Jörg Schmadecker came in sort of early summer on the, with the remit of basically following Jürgen Klopp's instructions, really. So it's been interesting watching the analysis of, of sort of exactly what happens. I mean, the reality is Liverpool signed Dominic Zoboslai after engaging in his uh, release clause, uh, Alexis McAllister, that deal was done by uh, Schmadeker's predecessor, Julian Ward, having again engaged the release clause. So there's not a great deal of a negotiation around that, certainly with the clubs, you know what I mean? They, they just engaged the release clause and then had to deal with the players' demands. Endo was the one, I'd say, which was that very left field that nobody would have ever spoken about as being, you know, he fits the profile of being a Liverpool player, obviously, back end of his 20s, given a long contract, I must say I was I was a bit surprised by the length of that contract, but he has become he, he's played a crucial role over the last couple of uh, certainly certainly since Christmas and and before as well. He, he's he's really knuckled down and and I think you saw that at Wembley on Sunday, you know when he was up against well certainly one of the players who would have come to Liverpool had they been able to get him. You know Liverpool were really keen on signing Caicedo. I, I, I thought that. Endo won that battle. Uh, he's been a really good signing for the team. The fact that he's been able to settle into that sort of deep midfield role, it's it's allowed McAllister to play a bit more advanced and express himself a little bit more without having to worry so much about what goes on behind him. 
and that suits him. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure whether Liverpool had this sort of really well thought out strategy for the summer, but it's worked. You know, the, 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 they did need that change in midfield. The back end of last season, that was the area where they really struggled. I mean, I've got to say, they got 40 million for Fabinho, who has been a brilliant player for Liverpool. But to get 40 million for a player and make a profit on a player whose best years are way behind him, I'd say there's a stroke of fortune that, that Liverpool were able to profit from that Saudi investment at the time. You know, Liverpool, that allowed Liverpool to go and spend some of the money that they did on the players that I've already mentioned. So within that as well, I think you've got to mention Curtis Jones. I think Curtis Jones has been brilliant for Liverpool this season. He's really kicked on. It's a real shame for him that he's missing out this this period because I'd actually argue he's probably been the most consistent of all the midfielders. When when he's played, he's just sort of settled back in straight away, knows what his tactical responsibilities are. He's expressing himself more, creating more chances, scoring more goals. And um, that area of the pitch has become, you know, a strong area of the pitch when the players are available anyway for Liverpool now. Yeah. Critch, what about City signings? Kovacic, Nunes, for instance, they've been used quite sparsely. How important do you think they are going to be for this title challenge? Um, I feel like the the signings that City made last summer were kind of to, well, look, losing Gundogan was huge. I think nobody, I think people kind of underestimated just how much he really tied things together in in the midfield and, and gave City that element of control. We always talk about this with Guardiola players that he wants players who are able to keep possession, who are able to slow the game down, who are able to make the right passes at the right time because it's all about total domination and suffocating opponents and that's what Gundogan did. And I think, look, if you look at Kovacic and Nunes as Gundogan replacements, have they managed to step up to that level? Perhaps not quite yet. I think Kovacic had a bright start but faded slightly. I think, you know, James will definitely remember the game at Arsenal uh, in October when he was, a lot of people thought he should have got sent off, to be honest, because and he had to, had to be brought off um, because he really wasn't up to the standard that day. Um, it's been difficult for him, but I think there's been signs of greater adaptation since then. Nunes, I think he's still trying to find his role, still trying to find a position in this team. And we've seen that with Guardiola signings in the past, that it often takes a season or two for them to really kick on. That's probably going to be the case for both of them. But you can't really say that that, well, look, City perhaps aren't having as as dominant the season as they have in the past, but they're still in it and they're still in the hunt. And like we keep saying, they, they still feel it still feels like they, they'll inevitably go on one of these runs. So it hasn't detracted too much, but I do think Gundogan has been something of a miss and something that those two players haven't quite lived up to just yet. Let's move on to the fixtures. Um, March looking like an intense month in general. James sort of alluded to it earlier in terms of Arsenal potentially having a semi-easier run in general. But I mean, James, no no game is easy in, in the Premier League. But do you think Arsenal will benefit from perhaps only having to, I mean, they're two very big competitions, let's not face it, the Champions League and, and the Premier League, but it looks, Liverpool and, and, and City are, are the only two within that three that, that still got an FA Cup draws. Yes, and Liverpool, you know, going for a quadruple, aren't they? And, and, and Arsenal know very well that Europa League schedule can be quite draining. It's a lot of fixtures to win that competition. Um, and Liverpool will be going for it. You know, Klopp will be going for it, I'm sure. Arsenal's, Schedule is a little bit lighter in March, but I don't want to downplay it. They've got some away games in the run-in where historically they have really struggled. I mean, the Etihad, that one at the end of March, looks absolutely massive. But they've also got a North London derby at Spurs. 
Uh, they've got to go to Old Trafford, who might not be in the best of form necessarily in terms of their performance level, but at Old Trafford, their record against Arsenal is pretty good. You know, this is not going to be straightforward for Arsenal and uh, they've been accumulating points pretty impressively in the last few weeks. But I think with the exception of Liverpool, they have played some pretty poor teams. I'd say some of the poorer teams in the league along the way. So it's a real litmus test. And I I think that City game at the end of March is absolutely huge. You know, Arsenal have got such a dismal record there. And to be honest with you, my gut feeling is that if Arsenal are to win this league, they might have to get a result in that fixture. Really? You think it it goes down to that one against Pep Guardiola to really stamp a sense of authority? I think it could make a real difference. I mean, obviously, Arsenal beat City at home. They beat Liverpool at home. They got a a point against Liverpool away that was pretty valuable for them. I think losing to City would just sort of, could trigger a collapse in a similar way to last season. I think that it's really important. If you look historically at Arsenal's famous title wins, there have been some pretty significant away wins along the way at places like Old Trafford, White Hart Lane. They're going to need to do something like that again, I think, if they're going to kind of keep up this pace and and hold off two teams. That's the thing about this race. It's all right being a race with one, but here effectively looking for two others to slip up. I think it is that much more challenging. What I'm fascinated to discover over the next couple of months is to what extent Mikel Arteta has kind of engineered this team to peak at the right time. I mean, that was the big learning from last season where Arsenal absolutely flew out the blocks. I think surprising even people at Arsenal, to be honest, with the, the rate of points they were picking up and then couldn't quite sustain it. In the first half of this season, Arsenal accumulated plenty of plenty of points, but they weren't playing their best football. And the likes of Havertz, you know, were still settling into the team. David Raya still settling into the team. Now they seem to be coming on really strong at the right time. That's something Guardiola's been an absolute master at. Uh, and maybe Arteta's learnt one or two lessons there. I also think Arsenal have shown patience with some of the players coming back from injury. So the likes of Jesus, the likes of uh, Jurian Timbo, who's back on the training pitch now, Thomas Partey. I think maybe last season these guys would have been rushed back in. There might have been a bit of a desperation there to get them back on the field. Whereas I get the sense that right now, Arsenal are really, really taking their time to ensure that they are as strong as possible in those final few fixtures. Hi, I'm Ali Maxwell and I'm the host of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. And what we love to do is provide measured, detailed analysis of tactical and technical aspects of the beautiful game. At the top of the Premier League, two points separate three teams. It could be the closest and most exciting title race for years. For our latest episode, we've scoured over those three title contenders to see if we can scientifically suss out who will be crowned Premier League champions in May. Will it be Man City, Liverpool or Arsenal? If that sounds up your street, then check out the Athletic Football Tactics podcast wherever you get yours. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. You're listening to The Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. The first prize of springtime is heading home to Anfield. Liverpool for a record 10th time. Liverpool as if by right. Liverpool again. Carabao Cup winners. Simon, talk to me. Quadruple. What are we saying? (laughs) Well, I suppose the... The benefit that Liverpool have is, first of all, the manager has been through this challenge before. I don't want to keep going about injuries, but it is the reality. If you've got all these players injured, it's a, it's impossible to... It, it's going to be very hard to win one of those trophies, never mind four, I would say. I mean, ordinarily, I would imagine that he would like to mix the team up for the away leg in Prague next week, but... It's now going to have to be largely the same players playing in the Europa League, then in the Premier League on the Sunday, and then in the FA Cup as well. There isn't that flexibility with selection at the moment to be able to, to freshen the team up. Unless, of course, we see... I mean, the most likely players to return at the earliest point, would, I guess, would be Salah, Zobislai and Nunes. Um, I, I suspect that the manager wants to get those players fit for the, for the City game at Anfield. I mean... That game is <laughs> that game is is enormous, really. And the thing is, I would always back Liverpool at home against any opponent, really, no matter the circumstances, really. And I, to some strange extent, I think that you know Liverpool having a few players missing will f- ignite the crowd even more and want to get on City's backs even more than than they would usually. Manchester City's record and Anfield under Guardiola isn't good, but there aren't there's not many, there's no clubs that could say that their record at Anfield under Klopp is good. So that that's nothing to be ashamed of. I think the only game that they won at Anfield was in the in the COVID season when there were no fans there. So and I think when Guardiola talks about Anfield and the power of the crowd in these big games, okay, I accept, you know, in the games where Liverpool are accepted expected to win, it's not as energetic. But in these sorts of games where it's a big game where there's a sense of rivalry a sense of Liverpool being a little bit of a, the underdog, given all the injuries that they've got to deal with. It's not going to be comfortable for City, I would say, unless they can score a couple of early goals, maybe, which they haven't done before. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, I, I've got to say, if Jürgen Klopp manages to navigate his way through this this period, everything that we've said about him as a manager, I think we've actually underplayed it because I can't think of any example in modern European football history where they're having to deal with this challenge, you know, a quadruple, one of the biggest challenges there is in, in, in football whilst having a lot of absentees. I'm just boring myself talking about all these injuries, but it's just the reality of it, isn't it? You can't ignore it. It's it's there. And um, if he manages to find a way to get a tune out of players who are untested in the most difficult, pressurised points of the season, I think James mentioned before, the two injuries that had a massive impact on our Arsenal season, Liverpool got that now. You know, times times five. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 going to be hard. But I would always um, 
back Klopp to come up with at least a fighting solution that gives Liverpool a chance of getting through it. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, I'm really looking forward to all these sort of subplots. It's not just a clear run at the moment, is it? I think all the teams are dealing with slightly different situations, which makes it which makes it really interesting. Yeah, Critch, we're so used to City leading the way in this respect. Um, Liverpool have obviously pipped them to it, um, the league in, in the past. But does that add to that element of jeopardy? Arsenal still to come to the Etihad, City still to go uh, to, to Anfield. I mean, what would have seen maybe last season or this couple of seasons ago as OK games, let's maybe get a draw here, a win. Literally, it has to be a win. There is no need or there's no way either of these teams can slip up at this moment in time. Yeah, no, look, I think the fact that we're doing this podcast now from a City perspective is it's like ideal timing because from from Sunday onwards, you've got probably, look, put the Champions League to one side. This, this is probably the month where City's Premier League title defence will be decided. They've got United at home. Liverpool away, Brighton away, Arsenal at home, Villa at home. And if you look just those five games, five games that I don't think any team would particularly fancy, those are going to decide it. And you're right, look, Liverpool and Arsenal both played each other twice this season, right? So you don't have a weekend where you know one of those teams is going to drop points. City have to play them both. Is it must win? Look, I I think kind of if City can get through this month... And they're still behind, but they're only behind. They say they're in a, within a margin of three of whoever, whoever's leading. Then for everything that we've talked about already on this podcast, for the pedigree, for the dominance over the years, for the fact that you know that they go on these runs and are they going to go on one of these runs, their breath will be felt on the back of whoever's next in front, right? So to come within that margin at the end of this period will be key. Um, I don't think they necessarily have to win, but I I do think they definitely can't lose either of those games because they lose either of them that really hands momentum to one of the rivals at at a key point of the season. And like we keep saying, City's almost, the joker in City's pack is momentum, right? It's this idea that they can just go on this spin and they'll just keep going. And if you hand that over to one of the other rivals at this point, I think that could be dangerous. But look, again, once they get through this, I think after that, to be totally honest, it's 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 a lot. Of, apart from Tottenham away, they've they've got, got still got to go to Tottenham, and they've got traditionally a pretty historic, poor record there. They've already won there this season in the cup, but before that, it was it was a bit of a wasteland for them. Aside from that, they're all games you'd expect them to win, and you can see one of those runs come in. And so it's about getting through this month now. I don't think you could downplay the psychological impact of those big games. I don't want to bang on about that City match, but if I think back to last season, you know Arsenal. We're in a very strong position when City came to the Emirates. Uh, City got the win. And I think it had a huge psychological weight in the remainder of the title race. I think that's partly why it's so important, Arsenal try and avoid defeat uh, at the Etihad when that game comes up. But, you know, at this point in time, 26 games in, Arsenal have got the same number of points as they did from the equivalent fixtures last season. And Arsenal season last season was almost a tale of two campaigns, really. It was one that was very good up until March and then one where they were really poor. You know, their form, their underlying metrics were those of a mid-table side, effectively. So it's about consistency. It's about stamina. Can they maintain this with the psychological pressures ramping up? And they're the ones who haven't done it before. And I do think that makes it so much tougher for them. But it also guarantees that there is enormous hunger and desire and drive to do it. So I don't think they're going to be lacking motivation. It's just a question of how they manage and how they cope when the heat's really turned up. 
Right. Um, I want to finish on this and it's a bit of a hypothetical, but I was talking to producer Guy about this just before we came on the pod in terms of obviously this month, well, March is going to be intense, right? They're all playing each other and there's some amazing games, but is there a, an, an air that because they are so competitive and because all three are quite evenly killed at this moment in time that we don't see them maybe in a playoff, for instance, you know, let, let's take the, the, the championship model. Let's take an American model. Let's maybe take, you know, a rugby model and, and bring it into this. Sai, what do you reckon? A fully fit Liverpool taking on a fully fit Manchester City and Arsenal in a three-way playoff. What are we saying? No. <laughs> Just a simple answer. Not everything has to change all of the time. <laughs> Not at all. No. No, I don't, I don't think it needs a debate. I, I'm sure it'd be like popular amongst some of the American owners who would like that spectacle, but it just, I don't know, it just takes away, I think, from the actual challenge of trying to win the league. It's like, as a lot of teams have found out, it's very hard to win the league. So say say Arsenal won the league, haven't not won it for so long. And then suddenly, actually, you haven't won the league. You've got to play a playoff. Imagine that, how you would feel. It's, nah, it's just not for me, though. You know, it's, it's um, no, I, I, I just don't think it, it benefits anybody other than people who want to make money out of the game. Yeah, I think it's like, because it's a bad idea, it'll probably happen at some point. <laughs> like someone will probably think, oh, this is this is all right. But it's you know, we have a tradition in English football where you play everybody twice, home and away, and then whoever's the best and gets the most points out of that wins. And I think that's fair enough. And look, speaking as, I know you mentioned the championship model. I think, look, the playoffs in the championship are brilliant. They're like brilliant viewing every season, but that is between third and sixth. And if you're the third place team, so if the sixth place team gets promoted to the Premier League uh, and the third place team doesn't, I guess there's, there's an injustice there, but it, we're not talking about the same level of injustice as if you finish top of the top flight uh, after a 38-game season. Again, beat home and away, you've got the most points and you don't win the league. I think that is a fundamental, wouldn't even call it a tradition, it's, it's, a, it's a principle of English football that should probably be protected. And um, yeah, look, I, I actually support a team in the National League North. We're third at the minute and you don't even get automatic promotion if you're second. And I'm I'm pissed off about that. Like, that doesn't feel fair to me. You know, second. Um, and that's in a division where you, you, you the whole objective is to try and climb higher and to, and to move up the leagues. Never mind, like, be the ultimate, you know, the champions of England. So, um, so yeah, I think let's not do it. But I can imagine a time when somebody has that bright idea, yes, and, and it gets implemented. We might get a Manchester City versus Arsenal playoff at Wembley, uh, but it'd be for the Champions League, <laughs> not the Premier <laughs> <Yeah>. League. <laughs> Mark makes a, a, a good point about the Championship. I think I could see it. I could see a plausible future in which maybe one of the European qualification places is decided via those means. I can see that those games would be big money spinners, big viewing figures, and you know. So there is a. I can sort of sense maybe a bit of inevitability about that. But when it comes to the league itself, you know, it's a marathon, and it's about who finishes that marathon and who finishes in first place. I think to take that away would really diminish the value of the competition. And I don't see it happening. You know, we are fundamentally still quite traditionalist about our football. And I think that element of it will definitely be retained. Right. Let's end it there. James, Mark, Simon, really appreciate your time. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And Michael Bailey will be with you 
with the weekend preview tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Guy Clark, Mike Stavro and Jay Beal, and the executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great Athletic podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.